made it clear in his word that our priority as Christians, our duty in Christian living, is to make it our priority to humble ourselves before the teaching and the preaching of his word. Therefore, it is our great joy to be able to do that once again this morning as we take our Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We've been going verse by verse through 1 Peter, and we now come to verses 13 through 17, a text that addresses the issue of being submissive to human institutions. Before we examine the text this morning, may I remind you once again of what Peter has been saying to the suffering, persecuted saints in the first century and certainly to all of us in our day and age. He's first encouraged them by reminding them of the glorious nature of their salvation. And folks, this should be something that we do, frankly, every week where we go back and just reflect upon all of the marvelous things that God has done for us in our salvation. And then he has also reminded them of their rightful obligations to keep their behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And that is important because good behavior, godly behavior silences the opposition as well as helps us in our witness as we endeavor to tell other people about the transforming power of Christ. And certainly it would be a mockery for us to share with people the transforming power of Christ when we ourselves are living lives of disobedience, lives that would bring reproach upon Him. And now Peter addresses another fascinating issue, one that might seem a bit out of place given the context that I've just described to you. After all, the people of that day could be saying, well, you know what, we are victims of persecution. We're being treated unfairly. We as Christians are being discriminated against. My personal rights have been violated. There is a double standard in our land. What about my minority rights? Where is the ACLU when you need them? We demand justice. This is unfair. So therefore, we might expect Peter to do, as many are doing in our land today, we might expect him to rally the conservative base, to get all of the Christians fired up, to elect the right people into office, to call people to political and social activism. Maybe you would expect him at this point to say, okay, we need to form a committee here and we need to have a giant demonstration. We need to march on Rome. We need to demand an audience with Caesar to express our grievances. We need to stage demonstrations. We need to protest this decadent, evil empire. We need to fight for our rights. Maybe even overthrow our government and put Christians in power. Can I hear an amen? I'm glad I didn't hear one. But instead of calling the people to political activism and to civil disobedience, he called them to 
submission. But what about my rights? Dear Christian, you gave up your rights when you gave your life to Christ. Your citizenship is in heaven, not here. Yes, but what about my happiness? Your joy is found in being obedient to Christ. And ultimately, your joy will be realized in heaven someday. But what about justice? Dear friend, be thankful that God gave you mercy, not justice. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Trust the Lord in His own time. But our leaders are ungodly. And our society is so wicked. Of course they are. They don't know Christ. They're in bondage to their sin. They live in the kingdom of darkness. They've been blinded by Satan. And I've called you to love them. To serve them and honor them. To pray for them. To preach the gospel to them. And yes, I've even called you to submit to them. Your life is all about me, not you. It's not about your needs. It's about my glory, God says. So I've asked you to be a living sacrifice. Indeed, I will supply all of your needs according to my riches in Christ Jesus. Therefore, he says in verse 13 of First Peter 2, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now again, remember the context, the Gentile world of that day hated Christians and even the Jews hated the Christians. They slandered them, called them evildoers. And it's no different today. In fact, in verse 12, they were told to live an exemplary life of godliness that would silence the opposition as well as be more effective as a Christian witness to the unsaved world. And now he's going to build upon those admonitions in the sections that follow by commanding us to be submissive. And here in this text, it's being submissive to human institutions, to civil authorities, to government. But later on, he's going to expand upon that and ask us to be submissive to our employers, to our superiors for whom we work and serve. And he's going to get even more personal and ask wives to be submissive to their husbands. And he's going to ask every Christian to be submissive to God. And on it goes. Now, this is a very important section of Scripture and often these types of passages are kind of gone over, left aside, because one might think, well, who would want to preach a sermon on this? And of course, the, I think the appropriate way to preach and teach Scripture is expositorily. So therefore, the very next passage that comes up, that's what you're going to hear. That's what we're going to study. But 
I believe there's another reason why this particular passage is often neglected in our study. And it's frankly because the very word submission tends to cause many Christians to bristle, to feel a sense of, ooh, I don't like that word. I, I don't like that concept. You might want to ask yourself before we embark upon this study this morning, to whom do you willingly submit? To what authority do you willingly submit? Government? Employers? Wives to your husbands? Husbands? To God? I have, for example, been asked on several occasions to do a wedding where the couple, especially the wife, have asked me to not mention this whole idea of submission in the wedding vows or in the ceremony. And whenever I've been asked to do that, I immediately reply that you need to find another pastor because that would violate the Word of God. And then I would also very quickly share with them that I believe that their marriage will never fully honor God without understanding those glorious concepts. So we see submission in Scripture with respect to marriage. We see it even with respect to leadership in the church in Hebrews 13:17, We read, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Is that something that you willingly adhere to in your heart? Or do you find yourself bristling at the thought of the leadership in the church ever confronting you on an issue, a spiritual issue, and you meet that confrontation with resentment and with ridicule? Very often I have encountered people that I've confronted and it is met with resentment, with ridicule, and really an attitude of who are you to tell me how to live? And of course I have to say that I am your pastor. I, I have been called and gifted to be a teaching shepherd. Um, a very unique, a specific office of leadership within the church, distinct even from the other elders, even though the other elders have the same authority, the same spiritual authority. And I've been called to keep watch, and I even have to give an account over how I shepherd you. That's who I am. I have been called, for example, in 1 Peter 5, 2, to take up the task of shepherding the flock of God, to exercise oversight, and so on. But again, the point is, many times people bristle at any kind of authority, especially in our me-first-nobody's-going-to-tell-me-what-to-do society. The Holy Spirit knows that submission to authority is contrary to our sinful nature. Frankly, the very thought of it opposes our pride and our relentless pursuit of self-gratification and self-determination. And it's for this reason that Jesus, when He calls people to Himself, begins by saying, if anyone's going to follow after Me, you must deny yourself. Submission requires humility. And submission requires a confident faith in the goodness of a sovereign God who sometimes 
allows us to be placed under leadership that is good and sometimes leadership that is bad. And so submission requires a willingness to even suffer mistreatment, knowing that God has made that particular scenario part of His plan for your life. And you must learn to trust Him with that. It's for this reason later on in 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 5, Peter says, Be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And by the way, he was referring specifically to the hand of persecution that God was allowing them to endure. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. So, as we approach this text this morning, we see the inspired apostle really addressing three crucial elements of submission with respect to human authority. We are going this morning to see the priority, the purpose, and the purview of submission. The priority, the purpose, and the purview of submission. And I pray that each of us will examine our heart as we meditate on these very practical and yet often resented spiritual concepts. First of all, the priority of submission is found in the first phrase of verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Dear friends, herein is the priority. This is the driving force. This is the supreme motivation for the command. We submit ourselves for the Lord's sake. In other words, we do it because it honors the Lord. How so, you might ask? Well, first of all, whenever we're obedient to the Lord, we honor Him. And we bring blessing into our life. Obedience demonstrates our love for God. In fact, the Lord Jesus Himself refused to be exempted from civil authority. He commanded in Matthew 22:21 that we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So not only do we demonstrate our love for God and honor Him when we are obedient, especially to this command of submission, but secondly, whenever we humble ourselves under the authority that God has placed over us, we are, in effect, manifesting our trust in His sovereign care for our life. We are saying, God, this is a very difficult situation that I'm now being asked to endure, but I know that in your great mercy and grace and in your sovereign plan for my life, you have placed me here for my good and your glory, and therefore I am going to be obedient and I'm going to submit to the authority that you have placed over me, as long as that authority does not contradict something that you have asked me to do. Yes, I will submit to those whom you've placed, knowing that you have ordained this scenario, again, for my good and your glory. And in verse 21, tell Christ uh, Jesus, of course, is our supreme example to follow in his steps. We see that he submitted to the will of the Father in humble obedience, even though it took him to a cross. And when we think of that, when Jesus submitted to the authority that he had been placed under by the Father's will, there was no protest. 
There was no rebellion, no fighting. In verse 23, we read, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And friends, I might underscore the concept of entrusting. A wonderful word. A word that we need to hold dear to our heart. Entrusting is really the secret to submission. Yes, God, I will entrust myself to Your sovereign plan for my life. And when we entrust ourselves to God's marvelous plan for our life, in so doing, we become instruments of righteousness. Because you must understand that He uses us to accomplish His saving purposes in the lives of others. A mystery far beyond our ability to comprehend and certainly beyond our right to know. For the secret things belong to God. So he says to submit. Upotasso in the original language, a military term that means to rank yourself under an authority, especially a commanding officer. It means to fall in line under or arrange yourself under a commanding officer. And here in this context, we are commanded to submit to human institutions of government. But again, you must keep in mind that the priority is that we do this for the Lord's sake. You know, as I meditated upon that phrase, I could almost hear the Lord in a voice saying to me, will you do this for me? I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, here the Lord is literally saying, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. And of course, in our hearts, we know all that He has done for us. And now He's simply saying, will you do this for me? Will you do this for my sake? Will you do this to just demonstrate your love for me? Will you place your faith and your trust in my perfect plan for your life? Will you do that for me? I'm ultimately in control even of all of the civil authorities that rebel against me. I'm very aware of their wickedness. I even know how they mistreat you. Indeed, they mistreated me. But will you submit to them for my sake? I'm reminded of the passage in Psalm 22:28, where we read, For the kingdom is the Lord's and I rule over the nations. Folks, don't think for one second that somehow the Lord lacks information. That He's being unfair or unkind. He knows all that's going on. In Psalm 47, verse 8, we read, I reign over the nations. I sit on my holy throne. And as we look through the Old Testament and the New, we see that someday He will make the crooked straight. And He simply says, trust me. Do this for me, will you? No need to be preoccupied with political reform and getting involved in all of the political process and and protesting and reacting in civil disobedience. Instead, will you do what I did and just with humility and love and without compromise for the truth or for the gospel, will you submit to those that I have placed over you? There is a similar admonition that Paul gives us in Philippians 2 beginning in verse 14, where we're told to do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent 
children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Now, folks, I understand most all of our leaders know nothing of Christ. They're hostile to His Word. They're many times hostile to us. They demonstrate certainly contempt for the exclusivity of the Gospel of Christ. Many of them hold positions that are radically unbiblical. The things of God are foolishness to them. They do not know Him. But we must understand that for reasons that we are not privy to, for reasons that will ultimately glorify God, God has placed them in authority over us. He's working a plan. And we're called to merely submit to it. So don't waste your time with political battles, social battles. Jesus never made that His agenda. He never rallied the conservative Christian base and marched on Rome. But rather we are to follow His example And I might even add, I'd rather follow the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles than the Reverend Jesse Jackson. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There's the long and the short of it. Friends, you must understand that our real enemy is not the ungodly authority that we have over us. The real enemy is not all of the social problems that we have. And so often Christians can get distracted, and I believe Satan would love to do this, to get you distracted onto a social agenda. And as soon as you get caught up in all of that, you lose sight of the mandate that God has given us to go out and make disciples of all the world. You, you lose sight of the priority of proclaiming and protecting the truth. You see, our real battle is deception. It is heresy. It is error. We must do battle against both satanic and human lies. I think of Paul reminding us of the doctrines of demons taught by hypocritical liars whose consciences are seared in 1 Timothy 4.2. There's the battle. False teachers that rise up sometimes even from within the church. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Those that dress up like a shepherd, but in fact they're not. We can read later on in 2 Peter 2 as well as in Jude about false teachers that have all these phony claims that they make intended to deceive naive followers into believing that they have supernatural powers, that they claim special revelation. In Jude 8, they're called dreamers, a very fascinating term in the original language that would describe one with an overactive imagination and or even a person who has demonically inspired visions. There's the real battle. If you want to rally the base, rally them on this this issue. Dear friends, every founder of every cult or false religion has claimed some special relationship with some angelic messenger. Do you realize that? Muhammad 
had an angel, literally a demon, appear and allegedly reveal 114 chapters of the Holy Quran. Mormonism's founder, Joseph Smith, had a special relationship with an angel, and I'm sure it was a demon, named Morani. There's been a pandemic of apostates like Benny Hinn and many others on the fringes of Pentecostalism and Charismaticism that claim these types of things. The Seventh-day Adventist prophetess Ellen G. White claimed the same types of things. Folks, this is where you can get exercised and you can go to battle when it comes to proclaiming and protecting the truth. But don't get distracted with all of the social and political problems that are out there. You turn on the television and you see false teachers claiming supernatural revelation to attract naive people. It's everywhere. And as we read the Word of God, we see that because of their immorality and their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, they blaspheme even the holy angels who serve the triune God as guardians of the law. They reject the Word of God disregard His holy standard in Scripture and through their imaginations and even their demonically inspired visions, they replace the Word of God with doctrines of demons. And you add to that all of the phony, goofy, silly philosophies of men. There's the real battle. Beloved, here's where we must rise up and be warriors. Warriors of the truth. We pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we go to battle and we destroy, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, fortresses, literally strongholds of deception. He says we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. But we are not called to do battle with civil authorities, but rather to do battle with the godless deceptions that have enslaved them. So the priority of submission is anchored in the twin virtues of our love and our faith in a sovereign God. We submit ourselves for the Lord's sake. Unto what? Well, verse 13 through 15 tells us we submit to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And here we have the purpose of submission. The purpose of submission to human institutions. Verse 15, it's the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. I have to laugh. Very often I will hear people say, oh, if I only knew the will of God, if I, if I could just somehow discern the will of God. Well, dear friend, here's one of the things God would will you to do. And I would submit to you that you will find many, many more in the Scripture that is very clearly delineated and revealed to us. But here is his will concerning submission to government. There should be no confusion here. There should be no subtle, twisted logic that would say, well, I don't have to pay my taxes because I'm not really part of this world. I don't have to obey the civil authorities. In fact, you have maybe heard of some Christians, and we saw this a lot when we lived in California, and I know of a lot of this out west, it's the sovereign citizen movement. Maybe you've heard of that. A loosely organized 
uh, collection of, of individuals and groups that have a right-wing anarchist ideology. And it was really originated by the, uh, the theories of a group called the Posse Comitatus back in the 70s. And the adherents of that position would hold that somehow the existing form of government that we have in the United States is illegitimate and we must somehow restore an idealized, uh, minimalist government, really one that never, ever even existed, but we must restore that, and you will see them using tactics of intimidation and, and vigilante courts and schools of common law and paper terrorism, frivolous lawsuits, and on and on it goes. You may remember uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, that came out of all of that with Terry Nichols and uh, uh, Timothy McVeigh. Uh, in 1996, you had the Montana Freedman standoff. And you have a lot of this going on. And sadly, there are people that name the name of Christ that get caught up into all of this. Well, you might say those are some rather extreme examples. But yes, dear friends, that may be the case. But think of the damage that Christians have done for the cause of Christ when they engage in these vitriolic, hostile demonstrations against abortion clinics or bombing an abortion clinic, or going out and shouting down the homosexuals on the streets. That does nothing to glorify God. It merely fuels the fires of hatred. The Apostle Paul wrote concerning this very issue in Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. He says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God and avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. You see, from this text in Romans 13, as well as the text that we have before us in 1 Peter 2, we see a description of the three purposes of government, an institution that God has ordained. And you could summarize them very easy. The government is to protect, to provide, and to punish. The government is to protect us from wicked people, both within and without our country. Also to provide for the populace in times of need, as well as to punish evildoers. And you ask, well, how do you know that God has ordained government? Well, the answer is right here that I just read in Romans 13.1. It says that all authority is established by God. But also, if we look at the text here in 1 Peter 2, in verse 13, the term institution is derived from a Greek word, ktesis, which means creation or foundation. And it's a term that is used throughout the New Testament in connection with something that God has created. Indeed, God has therefore created the institution of government. He's also created other institutions, family, the church, work. There's a variety of things. But here we are told to be submissive to this institution 
of the civil authorities of the government that God has placed over us because God has ordained it. He has created it. And God, by the way, has told us very clearly that he will judge the nations for their wickedness someday. In Genesis 18.25, we read, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And of course, the answer is yes, he will in his own time. And in Psalm 2, we read how that God sits in the heavens and he laughs at their insolence. He scoffs at the pride of the nations. And we read how that there will be a time when he will speak to them in his anger and he will terrify them with his fury. And in that final day when his, his wrath has been fully kindled, he will break them with a rod of iron and he will shatter them like earthenware. So, friends, we must learn that vengeance is the Lord's. We have absolutely no business taking the sword of divine justice and the sword of divine wrath out of his hand and wielding it on our own. There is no place for revenge for us. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And even in our society, there's no place for vigilantes. And I know there's times where you feel like loading up your gun and going someplace and taking matters into your own hands. We all know that feeling. But that's not what God has called us to do. In fact, in verse 14 here in 1 Peter 2, he tells us that the governors, in other words, uh, those officials that would serve the king um, or serve others in authority, the governors are the ones responsible for the punishment of evildoers, as well as uh, those who are responsible to reward exemplary citizenship. So Peter tells us that our submission to human institutions is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So our humble obedience to the laws and the rulers of our land, regardless of how unfair, how ungodly, and how frankly stupid they might be. And boy, we've got some stupid things that our politicians have put into law. But when we humble ourselves before their authority or under their authority, we help prevent Christian bashing and Christ hating. It's interesting here in verse 15. He says that it will silence the ignorance of foolish men. The word silence literally means to gag in the original language or to muzzle, to put to silence. Put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Ignorance here, a term denoting something far beyond merely a lack of education, far beyond a deficiency of knowledge about a certain issue, but rather a term that describes a, a, a culpable ignorance, a willful, wicked, conscious resentment to reject the truth. First Corinthians 15:34 is used saying, "Those who have no knowledge of God, the same type of concept. In other words, all they have is their own perverted presuppositions about Him. People that define God in their ignorance, in their culpable ignorance, in their willful, conscious rejection of the truth, they define God in a way to justify their own sin, to justify their own lifestyle. The worst kind of idolatry. But he also calls them foolish. An adjective commonly used in Scripture to describe an obstinate sinner. One who is irrational. One who is senseless. One who is 
ideas are ridiculous. One who adheres to outrageous beliefs rooted in malice and contempt for Christians. And my, this is so common today. Christians who agree, for example, with God's assessment of homosexuality as being an abomination to God, as being a vile, wicked form of immorality that defies both the moral as well as the physical order of the universe, people who believe that are considered to be homophobic. Well, that is the ignorance of foolish men. Worse yet, they're believed to be hate mongers and bigots. If you believe in creation, if you believe in a young earth, if you believe in a sovereign God, if you believe in the second coming of Christ, you're called a dangerous fanatic. And often we are likened to the Taliban. We are likened to the Islamic fundamentalists that threaten civilization. You see, when people have those types of positions, they have no knowledge of God. They are ignorant. They are foolish. So what do you do? You live a life of integrity, a life of virtue, and thus you raise the probability that you will silence them. We must be people who are above reproach. We must be people who have an unpeachable testimony. Humble, submissive, kind, gentle, loving, righteous, good citizens, yet bold for the gospel, committed to proclaiming and protecting the truth, come what may. That by doing right, verse 15, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. But Peter goes on to expand upon the purpose of our submission to human institutions in verse 16, he says, act as free men. Now think about that. We know the truth, and the truth has set us free, right? John 8, we have been freed from the penalty of the law. We have been freed from the power of sin and Satan and death. Our freedom is in Christ. Therefore, knowing that we are free, we can come along and we can choose to be submissive to these human institutions. It is His law that we love and obey. We are subject to Him and to Him alone, and because of this, we will willingly choose to submit to civil authorities that He has placed over us because we know that ultimately our submission brings glory to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are free to submit. That's the point. So he says, act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. In other words, do not use your freedom, your position, your power in Christ as a pretext, literally a covering, a mask, a veil to act wickedly against those who do not know Christ. Now, some might say, as I mentioned earlier, well, hey, I'm I'm an alien here, a spiritual alien. Uh, My citizenship is in heaven. I don't have to be bound Um, to the laws of this land, of this wicked world, friends, that's the wrong attitude. That's using your freedom as a covering for evil. We must all guard ourselves from our natural predisposition to spiritual pride and the abuse of grace. This idea, well, I'm just above all of this worldly stuff, so the rules don't apply to me. That type of ungodly narcissism. Or to say, well, I can indulge my flesh because where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And therefore, we end up exploiting the grace of God. What a hideous thing to do. 
In fact, in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul responded to that very issue saying, May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So, beloved, our service to Christ is our ultimate joy. And joy is found, now hear this, our joy is found in being submissive to Him and to those He has placed in authority over us. Peter goes on to say, verse 16, use your freedom in Christ as bond slaves of God. In other words, never use your liberation from sin and its consequences to serve the flesh, but to serve God. Again, we have been freed from the bondage of sin so that we can become slaves to righteousness. That's the idea. A bond slave, a willing servant of Christ. Like the slaves of that day, those that served their masters. We, we, we don't do it, however, with contempt, but we do it with joy. And finally, we see here the purview of submission, the extent, the scope of it in verse six or 17. A succinct summary of our social obligations here. He says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Honor all people. What does it mean? Very simply. There's no place for hatred, discrimination based upon race or nationality or religion or social economic status. I think of what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 4.1. It's summarized so well there. Masters, he says, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So you honor all people. We're nothing special. We're just sinners saved by grace, right? Our boast is in the Lord. We are to love all men because of their personal worth, not on the basis of their unique rank or status in the community, in our society. He says love the brotherhood. In other words, other Christians. Love the the rest of your family, the family of God. By the way, this is always going to be the natural response of a submissive Christian. They're going to naturally love their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're going to want to spend time with them. They're going to want to fellowship with them. They're going to want to sing with them and pray with them and and grow with them and so on. To care for them, protect them, even at times confront them. And how sad to see Christians who live in resentment of other Christians. Unbelievable. And Christians that live in isolation from other Christians clear demonstration of self-righteousness and pride. Jesus said in John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Peter also says that we're to fear God, meaning we are to reverence Him. We are to honor Him, to trust Him. Not so much fearing Him in terms of His divine chastening when we sin against Him, but a dread of dishonoring Him. To fear God is to have a resolute determination to love and to serve Him come what may. To know His Word, to live His Word, to defend His Word, to proclaim His Word, and to be submissive to His will and not ours. And in this political season with all of the re-elections coming along and all of the political mudslinging that we hear on the radio and on television. And when we see some of the people that may be put into positions of office, we say, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to do something here. This can't happen. Well, my mind goes again to this text and also 
the psalmist's words in Psalm 37, verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Can I read that again? Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Friends, therein is the hope of the Christian. He is our rock and our refuge. He is the one that we fear. And in Him we trust. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. And finally, he says to honor the king. Again, the king, the president, whoever it might be, that's the one that God has placed into leadership over us for His eternal purposes. Sometimes they are good. Many times they are not. You must always remember that God's saving purposes are often concealed in calamity. So may we all remember that our priority in submission is to be instruments of righteousness and do it for the Lord's sake. And our purpose in submission is to do the will of God and thus silence the ignorance of foolish men. And the purview of submission is very broad. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the King. May this be the conviction of each of our hearts for our good and for His glory. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank You for these eternal truths. We pray that we will not only understand them, but live them out in ways that bring great glory to You and to bring great blessing to us. And especially in our very difficult society, I pray that we will not be discouraged, that we will not lose heart, but that we will trust You completely and exclusively. And that because of our faith, because of our good works, because of our commitment to truth, that men and women and boys and girls will come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To this end we pray. In Jesus' name and for His sake, Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.